Radio Mano Papachango. coming to you from a rainy little corner of London, England, uh, where I've just got back from a beautiful couple of months on the Azorean Islands in the middle of the Atlantic. My partner and I have been out there looking for a new place to live, uh, which is going slowly but surely. And in the meantime, we had a really amazing time, not least an acid trip on the beach, which if any of your listeners have the inclination to do, I highly recommend. It is indescribable to feel that connected to the ocean. Anyway, in the meantime, my partner and I are living countries apart, but we are connected by the internet and your wonderful podcast. So thanks for that and for being a corner of this world that's making sense. Oh, thank you so much for that. Although my first response is, am I making sense? Really? I don't know. Maybe... I'm repeating myself, but one of the sort of baseline necessities of making sense may, in fact, be the suspicion that you're not. Who knows? These things are all conundrums. I want to say conundra, but that sounds pretentious, and I'm not sure conundra is the plural of conundrums, but it kind of sounds like it should be, doesn't it? The conundra. In any case, uh, good luck to you uh, finding your place in the Azores out there in this crazy world. Okay, this is a Roma episode. Uh, I have recorded a few episodes with other humans recently, but for one reason or another, they're not uh, ready to be released on the world. One of them is because the guy I interviewed, a Turkish friend of mine, really nice guy, very interesting, told some crazy stories, um, including one about having tea in the cell of the Hezbollah terrorists in a Turkish prison and becoming friends with one of the guys. Anyway... Uh, my guest, after we finished recording and he he listened to the raw recording, he decided he didn't want me to release it, which happens sometimes. Um, and I, I never really know how to deal with that because, well, there's only one way to deal with it, which is to say, okay. Um, but I mean, internally, because I feel like, you know, of course, I respect the guest's right to withdraw their permission to say these things publicly. Um, but when it happens, which isn't very frequently, but it does happen sometimes, I feel like what's happened is that they've been very vulnerable and revealing and candid and um, open when we have the conversation. And then they listen to it and they're like, oh, shit, you know, I sound stupid or my English isn't very good or, um, you know, it, it can often be some kind of um, 
inaccurate sense that they're not that interesting and people aren't going to care and, and this sort of baseline insecurity kicks in. And when it's that, I want to say, no, no, that, that's not the case. You're really interesting and your English is great and don't worry about it. And everyone will, um, you know, be, be totally into this. But then it could also be that they're looking at and they're saying, ah, I exposed way too much of myself and I don't want strangers to see that deeply into me. Or it could be, I exposed too much of myself and I don't want my friends to see that deeply into me. I've had that happen as well. I did probably one of the most powerful podcast recordings I've ever done was a woman who had been sex trafficked um, in China. And I met her at a party and I didn't know anything about her. I knew she was from Tibet. And uh, we were at this party and we were sort of, I think both of us were just sort of in this corner and sort of disengaged a little bit from the scene. And I said, so you're from Tibet, huh? And she said, yeah. I said, man, it must have been a uh, an interesting journey getting to... I think we were in Bombay Beach, actually, out near Joshua Tree, getting to this little, you know, RV party in the deserts of California from Tibet. And she sort of looked at me for a long time, just looked in my eyes, and she said, do you want to know the story? And I said, of course, I'd love to know the story. And she told me the story about being sex trafficked and... Working, you know, working, I don't know if you call it working, but um, being used in a, in a brothel in Beijing, I think it was. And then she met a, an American guy and the American guy decided he was going to get her out and he married her and then she got pregnant. And anyway, that's how she got out of China to... California and she spoke English perfectly and um, she was in the process of getting a divorce from that guy I think they had two kids and uh, you know and and I said to her at one point like my god if you ever wanted to tell the story publicly and we could change your name and you know we could protect your identity um, people would be fascinated to hear this story you know <clears throat> and she said, yeah, and let me think about it. And anyway, she got in touch with me a few weeks later and said, yeah, I think I'd like to tell the story. And, you know, I'm not ashamed. I didn't do anything wrong. And I said, yeah, okay. So I went to her place and we recorded it. And it was so powerful, so beautiful. Um, you know, we were both in tears at several times and it was just so raw and and wonderful. And she said, can I have a recording and just listen to this before you publish it? And I said, of course. And I gave it to her and a couple of days later she got back to me and said, yeah, I don't want this. Please don't publish that. Fuck. It was so good. You know, but I don't want to exploit her. I don't want to exploit any of my guests. 
Um, which is, it, it's a weird thing because some of the very best conversations uh, I end up not sharing with you. Always because the guest doesn't want to, never because I don't want to. At this point in 550 episodes, you know, maybe, I don't know, 400 of which have been with guests. I'd say this has happened maybe a dozen times, something like that. So it's pretty low rate, but it would be interesting to, you know, <laughs> it's almost like I wish I could put together, a, you know, outtakes or something. Um, but one guy asked me not to, I think I've told this story before. He asked me not to publish the podcast as long as he was alive. And at the time, I think he was in his late eighties, maybe even into his nineties. And I don't know if he's still alive, but I mean, I don't, I don't know how to tell. I don't want to call call Al's and be like, is, is Robert there? And then hang up if, if the person says, just a minute, like, oh, no, he's still alive. Anyway, so that's that's the uh, the trials and tribulations of podcasting, one of the trials. Uh, and the other guy, Eric, uh, I guess he keeps telling me, to push that back a little bit. Uh, he's a fascinating dude and really funny. And we had a rollicking conversation, but he's got a book coming out and maybe a TV show on vice. And so he wants to try to time the release of, of that conversation for when things are best for his publisher and vice. And I don't know. So it looks like that's not going to come out till February. So I've got a couple in the can. Um, and I, I mean, here I am in, in Crestone and there are lots of interesting people around. So I'm kind of working my way into having some conversations with some local folks. And of course, there are some uh, really interesting people that uh, I want to talk to remotely. Mike Mayer, who's uh, in the UK, uh, really cool guy. I've wanted to, to do a podcast with him forever. We did one, actually. I think we recorded one, but there was some technical issue and we couldn't use it. But then he just, he and his wife just had a baby a week ago. So, Mike, if you're hearing this, congratulations. Get that baby situation under control so we can do the damn podcast, man. Uh, there's a guy from, uh, he was involved with the Nixium group. If you watch the Netflix special called The Vow about that group, which some people refer to as a sex cult and some people refer to it as a self-help organization or whatever. Um, he was the guy who had uh, Tourette syndrome that was supposedly evidently cured by uh, the techniques of that group. So I think I'm going to be speaking with him and uh, yeah, lots of upcoming guests. But anyway, not today. Today it's just me. Just me yammering on about stuff. Um, I've been writing about things on Substack. And uh, this is just to lure some of you to come sign up for Substack. It's free. Uh, or you can pay five bucks a month in which you get access to all of my scribblings. Um, but probably about half of them or 
I don't know, it, it changes, but about half of them are free. Some of them go up behind the paywall and then uh, come out after a week or so. And, you know, I have to provide value to the people who are paying. So I try to find a, a balance there. Um, but I've been writing about things there. I wrote uh, a thing about um, global warming and apocalyptic tragedies or events on the planet, super volcanoes and asteroid strikes and all that kind of stuff. And my argument basically boiled down to the idea that, you know, we think that there is uh, a normal temperature range on the planet. Uh, and the only way in which there's a normal temperature range on the planet is if you average. But if you don't average, what you find is that the temperature of the earth is going up and down and up and down and the ice caps are expanding and contracting. And when I say expanding, I'm talking to like down to Spain, covering all of Canada down into the Great Lakes, um, you know, Siberia, Russia, the Scandinavian countries, all under a mile of ice. Uh, 12,000 years ago, not that long ago. Um, now, I know to most people listening to me, 12,000 years sounds like a long time. It used to sound like a long time to me. You know, the ancient Greeks were, what, 3,000 years ago or something. So you're thinking, holy shit, that's a long time. But after being immersed in evolutionary science for so long, my sort of, uh, you know, my lens, my, my, the window through which I look at the world has broadened quite a bit in terms of time because anatomically modern humans have existed for about 300,000 years, um, meaning us, right? So in 300,000 years, our human ancestors have seen well, they haven't seen it because they haven't had satellites to look at it, but they have lived on a planet that has gone through multiple glacial maximums, which is when the glaciers expand. Um, the sea level has gone up and down hundreds of feet. And um, a lot of crazy shit's happened. 70,000 years ago, the Toba eruption, which killed almost all of our ancestors. There's a clear bottleneck in human DNA that shows that um, there were only a few thousand breeding pairs of human beings in existence around 70,000 years ago when that volcano erupted on the island of Sumatra. Um, my point is that we assume this sort of static steady state from which we are currently diverging because of carbon emissions. But there isn't a steady state. There hasn't been a steady state except for this sort of brief interregnum in the last seven or so thousand years. But this is a very unusual pause in climactic climatic changes. Um, and that's what we take to be normal. But in fact, it isn't normal. I read a book recently called, oh, let me grab it. 
Apocalyptic Planet by Craig Childs, Field Guide to the Future of the Earth. Excellent book. Really good book. Uh, I love the way he writes. He travels all over and hangs out with people in Greenland and gets down into the sewer under Phoenix and wanders into the desert in Mexico. And so he's telling you basically his sort of travel adventure stories in order to make a deeper point about climate and the history of the earth and what we can still see evident on the surface of the planet. Really good, really good. So between that book and and the conversation with Charlie Zender, the climate scientist, uh, a month or so ago, uh, I've been sort of in this mindset of, of looking at the planet Anyway, so that's one of the things I published on Substack uh, a few days ago. And then before that, I I wrote a piece just sort of spontaneously about uh, football, soccer, why I enjoy watching these particular sports and the role they've played in my life uh, from childhood in Western PA in the 70s during the heyday of the Pittsburgh Steelers to the time I lived in Barcelona during the heyday of Barca, the the dream team, so-called dream team of Barca in the early 90s, um, and how watching these sports is in some ways transformative and transcendent and, and connects me to different people in my life and you know, especially my dad, of course, I grew up watching football with my dad. So anyway, that's some of what's going on over at Substack. Uh, One of the things I wanted to do in this particular episode was to respond to a guy who wrote to me a long time ago, 2019. Oh, December 27th, 2019. So it's at three years ago. Uh, I've just found this. I've got uh, folders all over the place of things that I'm intending to respond to. And then I forget to the folder I've got on keep. And then I open another one on notes. And then I have another one on Google fucking whatever it's called, Google Drive. And then I get another one over here. And it's just kind of chaotic. So I sometimes find these things that is like, oh, Jesus, did I ever respond to that? You know, this guy took the time to send me this beautiful message, and I don't even know if I I apologize for those things just sort of slipping around. But that is what you get when you're listening to a podcast that is handcrafted, small batch, artisanal. I thought that word was pronounced artisanal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> actually until very recently and i said it in front of a friend and she was like artist anal what are you talking about it's artisanal <laughs> i think we were talking about donuts and i was like artist anal donuts who wants one of those uh, i don't know not me anyway so here here's this uh this message from this guy he says i have a question for you i'm hoping you can offer some insight First of all, I'm a 29-year-old man on the coast of Maine. I'm a commercial lobster fisherman. I captain my own boat, and I'm also a writer. Sebastian Junger, is that you? (laughs) Uh, 
He says, my question pertains to settling down and being monogamous. Now, I'm just going to pause here and say, if you're writing to me about settling down and being monogamous, you, you've kind of stacked the deck in a way, right? Um, there are certain responses you know you're not going to get from me. But anyway, we'll leave that. Back to the message. I've never had an issue getting girls, but I have always had an issue with being satisfied being with a single woman, regardless of how attractive she is or how compatible we are. Basically, I lock my sights on a girl and I dive in head first. Ooh, that sounds uncomfortable for her. Everything is fine for the first year or so, but after that, I grow increasingly bored. Interesting word, bored. I know infatuation fades away, but I feel I have a severe case of chasing that feeling because I've walked away from great relationships in order to pursue that feeling. Oddly enough, whenever I find that next girl, I always think to myself, this is the one I'll be happy with, but that always falls away and crumbles. Then it's time to find the next one. Obviously, part of this is sexual, but I think there's more to it than that. I probably have an average sex drive, certainly not as high on the spectrum as many men I know, so I doubt it's a strictly biological sexual issue. I guess my question is, what makes men like me constantly chase that high, even when it's detrimental to us? I'm a relatively confident person, and I'm quite content with my career. I just find the hunt beyond intoxicating, and once I have the woman I want... I start to lose interest in a rather short period of time. I'm at the age now where I need to start settling down, but I still find myself wanting to chase that high, even though I'm in a good relationship. Okay. Now, when I read these things, obviously it's not primarily to respond to the individual who sent me the the question, right? This isn't a one-on-one -on -one thing and it's three years later. So this guy could be like married with two kids by now. Who knows? It's because it's an interesting issue. Um, so the specifics of, you know, where this guy lives and what he does for a living and so on aren't, aren't that important. Uh, I think I think this is a really common issue. And I wrote about this in Sex of Dawn. Um, I think that as human beings, we are taught, um, we're given a false map concerning what kind of animal we are and what kind of appetites are typical of the animal that we are. And that's one of the reasons I felt a sense of urgency to write Sex at Dawn, because I feel like a lot of people are suffering because they're using this inaccurate map to try to navigate their way through life. What we demonstrated in Sex at Dawn, I think very convincingly, is that our species has never been sexually monogamous. That's not typical, normal behavior for homo sapiens. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. It's in 
the size and potency of our testicles. It's in the design of our penis. It's in female copulatory vocalization, which is a fancy phrase for women making noise when they're fucking. Uh, it's in the presence of female orgasm. It's in the presence of uh, female perpetually swollen breasts. Uh, it's in it's in the chemical constituencies of our of our semen. It's everywhere. Um, it's in the primates closest to us. It's in um, it's in hunter gatherer groups. It's you know. So that's what the book's about. If you haven't read Sex at Dawn, that's basically what the book is. It's laying out the evidence that human beings are not naturally sexually monogamous. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with being sexually monogamous. It doesn't mean it's unhealthy or distorted or weird or dishonest or anything. It just means that it's not easy for us because that's not the kind of animal we are. And as I've said many times, you know, it's like I think monogamy is like vegetarianism. It can be great. It can be healthy. It can be ethical. It can be whatever you, you need it to be. But it's probably not going to be easy. Declaring yourself a vegetarian doesn't make bacon stop smelling good for most people. Some people it does. But for most people, bacon smells awesome and you want to eat it. So that's the baseline. That's where we're coming from as a biological species. Now, this guy says, I don't think it's strictly biological or sexual. And I agree. It isn't strictly biological or sexual. There's also personality components to this. There, something psychologists look at is novelty-seeking behavior. People, that's sort of um, uh, something that's tested in people and it's part of a personality. How attracted are you to novelty? How much do you like trying new foods? How much do you like travel? How much, how likely are you to listen to music you've never heard before? You know, if somebody says they like Ethiopian jazz, are you going to go home and look up Ethiopian jazz or are you just like, fuck that? I like, you know, sting and, you know, whatever it is, classic rock or what, that's my thing. You know, do you stick with what you're into or are you constantly looking for new stuff? There's nothing right or wrong about either one of those. Just people have different appetites. So that's something to keep in mind. Another thing I, I think of when I talk about these things or hear people talking about them is this section in The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, where he's talking about a lot of these issues. In fact, this guy could be tracked very much to the central character in that book, Tomas, who's a brain surgeon who is caught in this this sort of um, conundrum, there's that word again, uh, between wanting to have a deep, lasting, meaningful relationship with a woman and, on the other hand, wanting variety and wanting to feel sort of free and unconnected and he can sleep with whoever he wants and he can do whatever he wants and he doesn't have to make excuses or lie or, you know, do. Um, and that's one of the central issues in the book is how to resolve this uh, this problem, this paradox between these two seemingly incompatible appetites that we have. Um, 
And he says, and this is sort of, you know, I don't, I don't think it's anti-woman, but but the book is written in a way like this is something that plagues men much more than women, which is debatable. Um, I think that some women have very high novelty-seeking uh, behavior and uh, clearly in non-human primates, females are very much attracted to new males um, that are introduced to the group, sexually speaking. Um, but to what extent you can compare male and female appetites, they're different. I think they're, like everything else, I think they're, you know, equal but different, um, if that makes sense. But anyway, back to the book. Kundera says there are two types of womanizer. That's the English translation. Uh, I've spoken to French people who've read it in French, which is the language Kundera wrote it in. And they said that the word he uses there is not womanizer. It's not, it doesn't have that detrimental sort of anti-woman, like you use women and treat them badly and, you know, toss them aside and, and dehumanize them. It doesn't have that connotation in French. It's more like, in fact, I was just talking with a guy the other day about this, uh, who was interviewing me for a French documentary. Um, he said that the word in French is more like um, gourmand, like it, it's it's like you love women, like you just love women. It's not that you treat them badly, right? Like a gourmand doesn't treat food badly. He eats it. He eats lots of it. He eats different kinds of it, but he really enjoys it. So Kundera's word was not womanizer the way we hear it in English. It was more like lover of women. In any case, he says there are two types of lovers of women. One is the romantic and the other is the epic. And the romantic is the man who is looking for the perfect woman. Maybe it's a woman who's like his mother or something. He's looking for this perfect woman, this woman who's who just fulfills all his fantasies and all his dreams. And of course, he's always disappointed because no woman can possibly do that. Um, and so he goes from woman to woman in the sense of constantly being disappointed, constantly like, ah, she's not the one. I thought she was the one. Whereas the epic lover of women is the man who's never disappointed because he just loves women and he loves different kinds of women. And each woman presents a whole world of interesting differences, the way she smells, the way she laughs, the way she thinks, the way she makes love, the way she moves, the way she cooks, the way she makes her house, the way she dresses, like all these things are just so interesting to a man who truly loves women he loves each of these things and nothing is, it's not that one is better and one is worse or he's not looking for the perfect embodiment of femininity. He's just happy with them all. And I feel like I, when I read that, I was like, man, I get that. I really get that. I was in my early twenties and I was like, I am epic. I am so much the epic here because I just love women. I was never... It wasn't like, eh, you're not good enough or, you know, 
And I realized later in my life, in my early 30s, that I was in a way kind of, I had like one foot in the epic and one foot in the romantic in the sense that I was kind of blaming women for my restlessness. And it's not that I was blaming the woman. It's that I felt like this relationship must not be the one because uh, sometimes I feel like I want to be with someone else. I want to be on my own. I want to, you know, I'm not always into this. And it wasn't until my early 30s when I realized, like, that's a totally unrealistic set of expectations to bring to a relationship. And that's when I started to be able to relax in a way that I think allowed me to really enjoy being in a relationship for a longer amount of time. Now, without getting too personal, part of it was also that I realized like sexual monogamy felt very constrictive for me. And so that was a conversation I needed to have with a woman early in the relationship to be, to be sure that that's something she could deal with and, and that she understood and that we could kind of be honest with each other about that. And I found there were surprisingly um, many more women who were open to that than I thought. Um, that was a huge turning point in my life because I thought, I'm not going to find anyone who's open to that. And I'm, that's just going to be a disqualifier forever. So what I would say to this guy, if he were sitting in front of me is that you, you know, you probably have a very high novelty seeking score on your personality and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I don't, you know, when you say you dive in head first and then you get bored, I would, the feeling, the word, the reason I jumped at that word bored and sort of underlined it is that it seems insulting to the woman. And it sounds to me like this guy is in the rom. This, this guy sounds like an epic who is stuck in the romantic. And maybe I'm just projecting because I was an epic stuck in the romantic but one of the differences between an epic and a romantic is the epic is kind to women. He loves women. He doesn't want to hurt them. He's not disappointed by them. He doesn't feel cheated by them. He fucking loves women. And whereas the romantic is kind of nasty. The romantic is the guy who's like, yeah, you know, I thought you were great, but eh, actually I'm kind of disappointed. Maybe you're not that great. And even if you don't say that out loud, that kind of stuff gets communicated very clearly. Every woman has felt that. Every woman has opened herself up to a man and felt him kind of withdraw from her. And that's shitty. That's a shitty thing to do to somebody. The guy who doesn't call the next day, right? The guy who pretends he doesn't see you next time he sees you. And a lot of that is the guy is fucked up. The guy's full of shame. The guy is 
freaked out because you've seen him in an intimate way. And now he thinks you're going to reject him. So he rejects you first. Um, you know, whatever mommy issues he's got. I mean, it's very harsh. Women have to deal with a lot of this shit from men. And so I would encourage this guy and anyone who feels like this guy to recognize, to think real hard. Are you an epic or are you a romantic? Because if you're an epic, then you need to stop blaming women as soon as possible. And you need to recognize that there's something about you that generates this feeling. It's not about her. And that means probably that what you need, I mean, this guy, this guy makes his living on a boat. Think about that. What is a boat? A boat is a place you go to every day. You go to the same place. It's the same bridge. It's the same chair you're sitting in, but you're moving. You're going out into the ocean. The ocean's different every day. You're going to different areas every day. The weather's different. The waves are different. The currents are different. So look at what he's done in his career. He's managed to combine consistency with constant change. And I think a guy like this, to be truly happy... He's going to have to do the same thing in his romantic life, in his private life, which is to be with a woman to, that he can go deep with, that he can really share with, that he can really be intimate with, but in a relationship that's arranged and configured in such a way that there can be variety. So he probably wants to be with a woman who likes women who is bisexual or just sort of with women, bisexual doesn't necessarily work as a term. Uh, women just seem to be in general, pretty relaxed about sexuality with other women, but then he's going to have to be really, truly, deeply honest with his partner so that she feels safe. And that's going to take him, to a depth that he's not going to when he's just going from one to the next and sort of leaving them behind and saying, eh, yeah, well, I got bored. Didn't work out. Interesting. Um, I mentioned that I was talking to this French guy the other day. He was interviewing me for this documentary about female copulatory vocalization. And uh, Sex Adon is coming out in France in a week, something, January 3rd, I think. It's coming out in, in France, um, which is like the 26th, 7th language, something like that. Pretty crazy. Um, anyway, so there's that. And then uh, I also this week was talking to a woman uh, from, I forget the name of the production company, but she was talking to me about a TV show under development. Um I probably shouldn't talk too much about it, but it's basically about couples who want to open their relationships and they're talking about uh, having me host it. And, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think anything related to television or Hollywood or LA ever is going to happen because I've been down that road so many times, but 
Um, anyway, it's kind of interesting talking about this in terms of, you know, what I would say to a guy like that on a show like that. So if you're listening to this producer lady, here's your, uh, this is my audition tape. I was thinking, speaking of Los Angeles and all that stuff, I've been thinking recently, um, of doing a, a Toma series. For those of you new to the podcast, Toma stands for talking out my ass. And it's a series where I just tell stories about things that have happened in my life and people I've met and all that. And uh, I was thinking doing a series about being almost famous because now it's far enough behind that I feel like I've got, I've got some perspective on it, but it's not so far away that I've forgotten all the details. Um, so maybe I'll do that. It's, I, I've done the Thomas I've done in the past were sort of chronological, uh, but I think I, I'm going to get away from that and just tell whatever story I feel like telling. Cause people keep writing to me saying, Oh, when is there going to be another Toma? And I keep promising I'm going to do it, but then I don't seem to get around to it. Um, but yeah, I feel like it would be interesting to sort of revisit that experience of like what what it's like to be an English teacher in Barcelona at, uh, 40, whatever, what was I in 2010, 10, 48. So I was 48 when Sexoton came out and I went from being, uh, you know, English teacher in Barcelona to fucking everybody wanting me to host a TV show and do a Ted talk and get interviewed and, you know, hundreds of newspapers and beyond Netflix and HBO and everything else. Like it happened overnight. It was, it was a crazy experience and, uh, lasted for years. Lots of weird shit went down. So I think maybe I'll, I'll do a Toma series about that. All right. Well, I had a whole list of things to talk about, but it's been 42 minutes and, uh, I've got a half a beer here. It's, oh, by the way, I should talk about that. I stopped drinking when I came back from Europe, uh, late August. And then when I had that COVID thing in Montana, um, I got some tests and my liver was fucked up and they were like, okay, you got to not drink. Until three three months from now, which would be January, and then come in and get tested again and see if your liver's okay. If your liver's not okay in three months, then we got some issues, but hopefully it'll be okay in three months. So anyway, I haven't had a drink since late August. And um, I don't miss it at all. I, I also, to be fair, I don't feel any like amazing energy or, you know, like super mental clarity or all these things that people say you feel when you stop drinking. I never felt bad from drinking either. So, uh, I never really got drunk. I just got tired. Um, and I felt like alcohol didn't really affect me in a bad way. I didn't have car accidents or, you know, say horrible things at parties or, you know, whatever people complain about. Um, but anyway, I haven't had any alcohol, but I found this beer, um, Athletic Brewing is the name of the company. And if you like beer, particularly their IPA, it tastes like beer. I mean, it, it like good beer. I, I like IPA. 
It's got virtually no alcohol. I think it's like half a 1% or something. Um, but it tastes like beer. So uh, I think I'm going to get uh, Anya's talking with them now. I'm going to get you a discount code to try this. But if you want to, you know, I wasn't supposed to mention it until we get the code, but fuck it. Uh, if you like beer, but you want to reduce or eliminate alcohol, check it out. Athletic Brewing, uh, the IPA is what I really like. You can buy it online. You can also get it like Safeway. I'm not sure where you live, but I think Whole Foods has it. It's pretty well distributed. Um, so you can check that out. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to tell you about is those of you who are living in vans, um, I've had, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be very confessional here. We had an issue one night where some really creepy dude was hanging around and we were in the middle of fucking nowhere. We were miles and miles away from anybody. And this dude, it's a very skeevy situation. Anyway, it made me very nervous. I had like bear spray at hand. I was awake all night waiting for this guy to come back. It was, I felt very vulnerable. I told this friend of mine the story and he's like, dude, you got to have a, you got to have a gun in the van. Like you can't be cruising around without any defense. So he gave me, uh, a firearm, which we had in the van for a while. But then the, I mean, I'm not into guns in general. And honestly, like in what situation am I going to shoot somebody? Like, it's got to, it would have to be like a guy who comes up and says, you know, I'm going to rape and murder your girlfriend and I'm going to like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And just sort of lay out exactly what he's going to do. And then, you know, stand there while I go find the gun and come and shoot him. Like it, it's not very realistic. Um, so I don't know that had some psychological effect, but ultimately it's like, this is dumb. Also in some States it's fine. Legally, in other states, you go to prison for five years, you know, so if they find it. So that wasn't real comfortable. Anyway, my bear spray expired, which it does. And I was looking for new bear spray, but it's fucking expensive bear spray. Uh, and it only shoots like, you know, 20 yards or something or 20 feet. Maybe it is. Um, anyway, and I came across this thing, Burna, B-Y-R-N-A. It's this company, I think they make paintball guns, but they also make what they call less lethal uh, weapons. And they sent me this this uh, thing. It looks like a pistol and it shoots pepper ball, um, little pepper balls. And you can get other things. It shoots like for targets and it sh- it, you got these green things that are echo that if you're out target shooting or whatever, and they break up or they ricochet off, they just dissolve in the rain and they won't hurt anything. And if an animal eats it, it won't hurt it. Um, but they do, they do have these, um, pepper ball things and it shoots like 50 yards. It's a CO2 cartridges. It's awesome. So I'd be much more willing to shoot some threatening weirdo, uh, with a pepper ball and, you know, just kind of freak him out and make him cough than I would to, you know, shoot him with a 38 or something. 
Um, so if you're living in a van and this is an issue for you, check out Berna, B-Y-R-N-A. They're not cheap. It was like 400 bucks or something. Um, but they're, uh, it's a good, uh, you know, it's a good middle ground. So you got some protection against bears as well. Um, but you're not risking going to prison or killing somebody or, you know, having, getting into a fight with somebody and having shit go sideways that, that way. Um, you're not getting into the whole gun culture. So, and also, like I said, they're legal in all States. You can check them in your luggage. Um, they're, they're not considered firearms. So Berna, B-Y-R-N-A. They sent it to me for free and I said, I'd talk about it on the podcast. So I just did. And it's legit. I mean, it's, it's a, thank you all for listening. And I will be back with you soon. Much love. Radio Mano Papachango. Permanece a la escucha.